Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And thank you. Thank you for your time to come. And I'll tell you, I have enjoyed time with Pastor and Bernie this week. We've had a couple of meals together and just talking about the Lord, sometimes laughing, sometimes burdened, sometimes praying. Uh, you know, just the camaraderie is, is deep. And I will, I'll tell you this, what a blessing to have a pastor that's been with you as a church body for 32 years. You know how rare that is? And uh, I, I, uh, I'll be Pastor Doug Taylor next week. He's been at Calvary Baptist up in Oroville for decades as well. And uh, I was with Chuck Miller down in Fresno uh, two weeks ago. He's been there 30 plus years. But uh, the average stay for a pastor with churches is about three to five years. So think about it. You've had a pastor here 10 times that amount. He's tried to leave a couple times, but we won't. You were open tie him, Brother Kerry? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you said every church needs a Brad. Every church has a Brad. I have found that out. So, <laughs> and a carry, and yeah, they're out there. Uh, that's, hey, that's job security for the pastor. So, we're gonna uh, Genesis chapters one and two. But anyway, I sure I appreciate you. I I have prayed for you throughout the year. When I pray for a pastor and his wife, I pray for you as a church family. I pray for Tim and Megan all the time, and. And uh, really grateful for your, your impact and your faithfulness. And let's, let's stay faithful and let's ask God to deepen the fruitfulness. That's what the whole message on abiding was the other night. I, I like what one guy said years ago. I, I repeat it often. You know, if you meet me and forget me, you've lost nothing. But if you meet Jesus Christ and forget him, you've lost everything. Doesn't really bother me if somebody does. Yeah, that evangelist we had. What was that guy's name? That's okay. It's fine if that happens. But you better not forget the Lord Jesus. And it is he who will change your life. Well, we're in Genesis tonight, chapters 1 and 2. I'll tell you why we're here. I remember when I was a kid, my dad uh, made a statement. I was probably 15 years old at the time. He said, Rich, if you're going to understand life, you've got to get a hold of the first 11 chapters of Genesis. And not too long ago, I guess back in February, I was traveling somewhere. And I was listening to Charlie Kirk on the radio. Charlie Kirk is, has a ministry to young people, Turning Point USA, and they, they really focus on... Uh, teaching kids in college and high school a biblical worldview when it comes to politics and such. And he really was emphasizing the point of the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And he repeated, you know, if you don't understand the first 11 chapters of Genesis, you're not going to understand life. I was a flashback to what my dad told me. Well, there's something to be said about a biblical worldview. And a lot of times when I'm preaching, people say, well, you kind of got off into politics. Well, politics come in sometimes, and I'll tell you why. Because politics flow downstream from culture, and culture flows downstream from your worldview, from your religion. And it is amazing. There, there is rabid religion in our country today. Amen. For many people, it is the, the um, sacrament, and I use that word tongue-in-cheek, of a woman's right to abort a baby. That, that's not a sacrament. That's sacrilege. But that is, that's treated as sacrosanct in our society. I listened to these statistics from the Wall Street Journal back in March. I heard them on the radio, and I wrote them down. Fascinating, disturbing, but fascinating. Only 38% of Americans today rate patriotism as very important to them. 38%. Back in 1998, that was 70%. Why'd they pick the number 1998? That was 25 years ago. So 25 years ago, 70%. Isn't that interesting, too? Because I think after 9-11, that number actually escalated. 70% in 1998, only 38% today 
think of patriotism as important. I'm afraid there are a lot of people that are ashamed of America today. Uh, by the way, for the record, I believe that America is an exceptional nation. And I believe she's exceptional because of the foundation on which this country was built. Only 39% of U.S. citizens value religion as very important. 39%. That's less than 4 out of 10. 25 years ago, that was 62%. 30% state that raising children was very important to them. That's less than 1 out of 3. Back in 1998, that was 59%. Now, those sound like, yeah, okay, those are disturbing trends. But you know what they're all reflective of? They're all reflective of a changing worldview. And my dad wasn't kidding when he said, if you're going to understand life, you've got to really go back to the first 11 chapters of Genesis. So I was pondering that and thinking about the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That's uh, Proverbs 1.7. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's Proverbs 9.10. And so I was pondering. I, I keep a daily journal. And I was writing these notes in my journal back in July, uh, two years ago. God made the universe. This is pondering Genesis 1 and 2. God made the universe. God created two sexes, male and female. He made marriage to be a union of an individual man to an individual woman. One man married to one woman for a lifetime. God gave them the capacity to produce offspring. When they mate, they sometimes conceive. When they do conceive, the children born to them are their responsibility. It's their job, not the governments, not the schools, not societies, to provide for, to train, and to love their kids. Society is built on the building block of the family unit. When families fail, society is harmed. When marriage is dissolved, children are hurt. It behooves the Christian to realize or recognize the rightful place of God, to submit to his sacred word, to embrace the unique role of the sexes, to honor the sanctity of sex and marriage, and to fully own his obligation to love, provide for, and train his children. Dad, the job starts with you. Own the task, love your wife, train your kids. You know, I was thinking about that. If I were to post that on social media, I'd probably get flagged on a lot of social media sites. In fact, I might be blocked out. You know why? That's not the prevailing worldview, is it? In fact, I, I believe that political correctness today is the, the Quran of modern America. You know the Quran is the Muslim holy book. Political correctness today is the Quran of American society. If you go against wokeism, if you speak out against political correctness, you'll likely be canceled. You'll probably feel the wrath of the woke. But I want to tell you something. Edmund Burke said it well. All that's necessary for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. And I want to preach you a message tonight I've entitled, Do Your Job. Do your job. And we're going back to Genesis to find out what is our job. What is the responsibility that God gave to all of us? So we're in Genesis 1. Let me start in verses 1 to 5 here. Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Isn't it interesting? There's no defense of God. There's no apologetic. There's just a declaration of God. In the beginning, it was God. You have to believe something always existed, either God or gas, either creator or chemicals. It all started somewhere. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The earth was without form, didn't have any particular physical uh, features to it at that point. It was void, it was empty. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw the light, it was good. God divided the light from the darkness. God called the light day, the darkness he called night. The evening and the morning were the first day. It's interesting, the the heavenly spheres are not created till day four, but light was showing up on day one. 
The Bible begins with a declaration that God was the light in the beginning, and it ends with a declaration that there's no need of the sun. Now, I don't know that that means there won't be any sun when he makes a new heaven and earth. He just says there's no need of the sun because in the new Jerusalem, the Lord is the light thereof. All right, drop on down to verse 26 for sake of time. God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. And God blessed them. And God said, said to them, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air, over every living thing that creepeth upon the earth. God said, behold, I've given you every herb bearing seed, which is upon the face of the earth, every tree in the which is fruit of a tree yielding seed, to you it shall be for meat, for food. To every beast of the earth, to every fowl of the air, to everything that creepeth upon the earth, wherein there is life, I've given every green herb for meat, it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, behold, it was very good, and the evening and the morning were the sixth day. So, God says he made everything, and he says he did it in six days. Now, some people say, well, you, you really believe he did it in six days? Absolutely. He said so. And by the way, these are six literal days. Um, when God rested on the seventh day, do you think he rested for millennia? <laughs> he didn't need to rest at all, but he, he rested as an example for us. Uh, they were six 24-hour days. If God wanted to, he could have created the earth in six nanoseconds, but he created everything in six days. I remember reading a book one time. I was in a bookstore in um, Gatlinburg, Tennessee, and I walked in, and it was, it was a bargain book. It was called In Six Days, and I read the back. I said, oh, this is good. Fellow who compiled the book was a uh, fellow named John Ashton. He had a PhD in one of the sciences, I forget what. And he said, I was at a conference one time. It was a conference on origins. How did the earth originate? How did the universe originate? And he said, there was a very audacious man who stood up and said, I don't believe there's a PhD in America who believes in a six-day creation. And John Ashton thought to himself, well, I know I do. And he looked around the room and he thought, I know that guy does and I know that guy does. And so he sent out a one-sentence email to colleagues all over the English-speaking world. He, he knew people in America, Canada, England, Australia, New Zealand. One question, why do you believe in a six-day creation? And he got back essays that ranged anywhere from five to 15 pages. And fascinating, they were, they were people who ranged from nuclear physicists to biologi uh, uh, biologists to uh, chemists, uh, statisticians, and he compiled them in this book. And I read the book. It was fascinating. In Six Days by John Ashton. It would be a good book for you if you need any uh, scientific verification of what God says. And I thought, man, that is phenomenal. Paul warned Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.20 to avoid science falsely so-called. Have you ever in your life felt such a push from the uh, establishment to embrace things as so-called science that have no scientific backing? And I'll tell you, I began to understand this when I was a kid. You know, science, we were taught evolution in science class in public school. Evolution is not science. Science is based on observable, reproducible fact. And evolution is at best theory, hypothesis, uh, probably less than that. But you know, it's somebody's idea of, well, this is probably how it happened. You know, God tells us how it happened. He said, I was there, and I did it, and this is how I did it. And by the way, true science has never contradicted God and his word. Science is no threat to the Bible. Science is affirmation from the Bible when it's legitimate science. 
But God warns about science falsely so-called. So I want to dive into tonight, Genesis 1 and 2, and uh, I'm going to really break it down into two areas. If you want to take notes, I've called it do your job, because God gave Adam and Eve some jobs here. And we're going to start with number one, the heavenly view of human beings. The heavenly view of human beings. For sake of time, I'll just focus on verses 26 to 31. That's where he gets into the creation of man. So notice God said, let us make man in our image. Okay, stop just a minute. Who's us? Yeah, this is the triune God, okay? And uh, I was talking to a man Sunday, and he said, uh, I think I mentioned to you, he said, you know, I really, I struggle over the whole idea of God being a trinity. How, how, how is that possible? I said, I don't know how it's possible, but it doesn't surprise me. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out, Romans eleven thirty three. I said, I really believe it's one of the self-evident proofs that God revealed himself to man. Man didn't come up, come up with the concept of God. Whoever in his mind would say, we believe in one God, we're monotheistic, but now he appears in three persons or he exists in three different personalities. Well, what human would come up with that? Well, the fact of the matter is a human didn't come up with that. God revealed it to us about himself. And he's speaking of this when he says, let us make man in our image. I remember talking to a Jehovah's Witness lady one time. I was in uh, Ohio, and we were visiting her brother in the hospital. He was in such bad shape that only one person at a time could go in. So the uh, pastor said, would you mind sitting in the waiting room while I go see this man? I said, sure. And so I sat down with the sister, and I said, hey, I just want you to know we're praying for your brother. And she said, well, I thank you. She said, do you know, at this point, we'll take prayers from anybody we can get, <laughs> which I never really had anybody say that to me before. So uh, that was an unusual thanks. Well, I found out that she was Jehovah's Witness. And so she said, you know, I don't share your Baptist beliefs. And I said, yeah, I would gather that. And I, I just played ignorant. I said, so where do we differ? I knew, but I wanted to hear from her. She said, uh, well, among other things, I, I don't believe in the Trinity. Jehovah is singular in the Bible. And I said, uh-huh. And so who did God mean when he said in Genesis 1, let us make man? She said, well, that's the Holy Spirit. I said, oh, so you believe in the Holy Spirit. Well, not like you do. He's not an equal to God, but he is the agent of God. And I said, yeah, well, that's really interesting. Who was God speaking to when he said um, in the Jewish confession of faith, the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord, Jehovah, our God, Elohim, is one Lord. Jehovah is singular. God is plural. And then Jehovah, again, is singular. There's a singular plurality in the Godhead. She said, well, that just doesn't make sense. And I said, well, let me ask you this. How do you think the world got here? She said, God made it. And I said, I agree. How did he make it? She said, he's spoken into existence. I said, I agree too. And uh, I said, how long did it take him? She said, six days. I said, oh, I agree. But you know, the reason I agree with you is because God tells us. If you and I were talking to some Ivy League school professor, he would probably not agree with you or me. And he might say, how could you possibly believe that? She said, because God says it. I said, that's my answer to you about the Trinity. Uh, we may not understand it, but I want to tell you something. I don't have to completely be able to wrap my mind around the concept of God to be able to accept the truth of God. I mentioned to you the other night, you know, if, if you tried to explain calculus to a kindergartner, they'd be completely lost. Frankly, if you tried to explain it to me, I'd be completely lost. But that doesn't eradicate the value of calculus as a mathematical discipline. I may not understand God. I may not understand the concept of the Trinity, but he is triune, and he is the creator, and he made everything. He said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And then, interesting, how are we made in his image? So I, I wrote down here under the heavenly view of human beings, first of all, A, God made them. God made them, and he says he made them in his own image. Now, do we look like God? Well, God's a spirit. The spirit doesn't have physical features. Now, the word was made flesh, 
So Jesus had physical features. Interesting, we have no idea what Jesus looked like. We would assume he was Jewish, so he probably had dark hair and dark eyes, you know, but how tall was Jesus? I don't know. What did his voice sound like? I don't know. He had to have a strong voice because thousands heard him at one time. Um, Isaiah said he hath no form nor comeliness. It's not like, wow, what a good-looking man. Probably not. But we know nothing about Jesus' physical. Isn't it amazing? As many people as wrote about Jesus, we know nothing about his physical characteristics. Now, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Okay, so what does it mean we are made in the image of God? Uh, two years ago, I was in Cleveland, Tennessee. My friend Dave Gamble pastors Shenandoah Baptist Church. And it's close to two ministries that I had n- contact with over the years, and I wanted to visit their headquarters, Baptist International Mission, B-I-M-I, and uh, Rock of Ages Prison Ministry. So I said to my friend, you got guys from your church in those ministries. Um, could you take me to see the headquarters? Sure. So we toured B-I-M-I, and then we went over to Rock of Ages Prison Ministry, when we toured Rock of Ages, they, they gave me a copy of a New Testament that they print for prisoners. Well, the notes were so good, I wrote back to them later and said, hey, I'd like the full Bible because I want the notes. So I paid $10 for a soft cover Bible. And I found out that the reason the notes were, were really um, insightful, Rich, they were, they were from the old, well, what was called the New Pilgrim Study Bible. They got the rights to the New Pilgrim. I didn't have that Bible, didn't have that study Bible, but I, I thought I'm going to get it. Listen to these notes from the New Pilgrim Study Bible on uh, Genesis 1.26. Of all creation, only man was created like God, a trinity. Plants have a body. Animals have a body and a soul. Man is a trinity who has a body, soul, and spirit, 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Someone has likened the body to sense consciousness, the soul to self-consciousness, and the spirit to God consciousness. That's interesting. Okay, the body is likened to sense consciousness. So think, even plants have a body. Um, You ever see a morning glory? A morning glory will be in full bloom in the early morning, but when the sun hits the morning glory, it closes up. Sense consciousness, okay? It responds to stimuli from the outside. Now, animals have a soul and spirit. That's why, you know, you often hear a dog is a man's best friend and... (laughs) Frankly, a lot of people in our world love their pets more than they love fellow humans. Have you noticed? Um, Years ago, a book came out, or a movie came out called All Dogs Go to Heaven. I want to tell you it's a cute title, but it's not true. You're not suggesting my dog's going to go to. No, your dog's just not going anywhere when it dies. Uh, The book of Ecclesiastes says that the soul of the animal goes back to the dust. That's not the same for man. Okay, when an animal dies, it's over. It's out of its misery, okay? But when a human dies, there's either eternal bliss or eternal suffering. In fact, uh, I want you to see, well, we'll get to that in a minute. We're going to see it in the book of John. Suffice it to say, we were made with a spirit, soul, and body. The, The problem is, well, why do some people act like animals? Because by nature, man is born with a spirit that is dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians 2, 1, you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. Why did Jesus say, even to a very religious man like Nicodemus in the book of John chapter 3, you must be born again? Why did he say, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God? He explained, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said to thee, you must be born again. Nicodemus said, how can this, how can this be? He said, you're a teacher of Israel, you don't know these things? And he went on to go, to reveal God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. What was that all about? Salvation 
is not simply a bad person being made good. Salvation is a dead person being made alive. That's what salvation is all about. Until you're born again, that's Jesus' term, you're dead in your trespasses and sins. So why do so many people, I mean, do you think, you think Hamas is acting like humans should? No, of course not. But how many times do you and I not act like humans should? You know the problem is? Until we know Christ, we're dead in our sins. Our spirit is dead. It takes the Holy Spirit to make our spirits alive. So if you die, if you're born once, you'll die twice, someone said. You have a physical birth, but if you die dead in trespasses and sins, you're separated from God, and your spirit will be separated from God in a place called hell. But if you're born twice, physically, and then born again spiritually, you'll never suffer the second death. You'll be with the Lord forever. We'll get to that in greater detail. So God made us in his own image. Not only in his image, but you notice in verse 26, I'm sorry, verse 27, he created them male and female. Okay, so in his own image and in two distinct sexes. You know, this sounds just so um, simple. I'll tell you, I, I, I hear a lot of comments. I've been preaching this message a lot this year because I'm really burdened about our country and we've got to get back to foundational truth. And I will tell you, had I preached this message 10 years ago, it would have seemed very rudimentary, would have seemed very basic. But we're living in a day when people figure you can just identify as whatever you want to identify. You know, I'm thinking about moving to San Francisco and identifying as a Native American and maybe I could get a lot of money from the government, you know, just because you say you identify something doesn't mean you are something, right? I mean, if, I, I don't mean this disparagingly at all, but if, if I wanted to identify as a special Olympiad so I could dominate the Special Olympics, would that be justified? So how in the world is it that a man wants to identify as a woman so he can, identify, so he can dominate women's sports? Leah Thomas should be able to edge out Riley Gaines, a world-class woman swimmer, How's that justifiable? Well, frankly, it's not. It's reprehensible. But that's where our society is today. See, we're flipped on our head. It's really simple. You go back to God. He said, let me just tell you, here it is. There's male and there's female. And by the way, science verifies that. X, X chromosomes and XY chromosomes. It's really simple. So God made everyone. He made them in his own image and he made them in two sexes. So not only God made them, but then God blessed them. Look at verse 28. He blessed them. God blessed them. To bless means to affirm. It means to pour out happiness upon. God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. Okay, so notice, some people in this world act like humans are the invader on this planet. I, I don't know if you pay attention to the news. You know, my girls are always saying, Dad, you're kind of really obsessed with politics. Well, actually, no. I'll tell you what. I'm informed on politics. I'm... I'm infused with the Word of God. My purpose is to be infused with Scripture. But I do pay attention to what's going on in politics, and I'll tell you why. Because there is a threat in our world. Uh, this whole, this whole uh, World Economic Forum, the Klaus Schwab, George Soros, Bill Gates, do you know what they want to do? They want to take our world population back to about 1,500 years ago. They really do. They have the idea that the, the planet is overpopulated. We're, we're going to get to that in a minute. But let me suggest to you, God never said that men were intruders on the planet. In fact, he made men the custodians of the planet. He blessed them. So he not only made them, but he blessed them. But then he charged them. Look at verse 28. What did he charge them? He gave them an admonition. He gave them a, com a commandment. 
He said, be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it, have dominion over it, over everything that's been made. Okay, so what did he charge them? He never warned man against populating, overpopulating the planet. He told him to be fruitful. My brother-in-law, Michael, what traveled me for 11 years, you know, you know what put him off the road with me? Having more kids. Uh, they had five at the time, and I remember the day we were back in Kansas City. We are preaching for a church where uh, the pastor had gone back to the mission field, so the assistant pastor had asked us, would we come and do a meeting at their church? And I'm sitting uh, in Kansas City with my brother-in-law, and he just called back to his wife, Candace, and he's saying, you know, so how'd the sonogram go today? They had five children at the time, and, and she said, well, it went pretty well. I have to tell you something, and I'm hearing this on the other end of the cell phone. And he said, twins? What? And I thought, my ministry is about to change. <laughs> now, why did I think that? Well, they had five at the time. All of them were 10 years old and under. So can you imagine trying to get seven kids to church every night? I mean, pretty much we're in church every night. I knew it wasn't going to be practical. Michael now pastors Faith Baptist Church in Raymore, Missouri. Now, they now have another child. They have eight, okay? Now, let me say, sometimes you go to a restaurant and people see all these kids come in and they think, well, that's a lot of kids. Almost as if it's a crime to have a big family. May I say something to you? Not only is it not a crime to have a big family, it was commended by God. Now, I'm a person who only has three daughters. Okay, I want you to understand. We totally left our family size in God's hands. I always thought we'd have five. That seems big to me, you know, because we live in a trailer. Um, one of ours is with the Lord. The only boy we ever had, we lost at 17 weeks into term. But I have three daughters, okay? They're, now, it's a big family. My oldest is six feet, my second one's six, two and a half, and my youngest is 5'10", and she just turned 13. Okay, we're a big family in different ways. Look, your family size is between you and God, but I want to tell you something. You did not get the concept from God that a big family is irresponsible. And there are so many areas that secular humanism has invaded our church mentality. I read a book uh, when COVID broke out, and I would recommend this book to you. It was written by Erwin Lutzer, who was the pastor of the Moody Memorial Church. Uh, it's called We Will Not Be Silenced. Have you read that, Pastor? That's a good one. We Will Not Be Silenced. He wrote it during COVID when uh, CRT, critical race theory, was gaining uh, popularity among the public schools. And he said, look, critical race theory is just a rehash of something that was introduced by Marx uh, and popularized under the Nazis called critical theory. And the whole idea is, well, you have to create class warfare. You have to create envy because it, the government can only control people if there are crises. Saul Alinsky, you know, never let a crisis go to waste. That wasn't Rahm Emanuel who originated that. And uh, this whole concept was you use crises to manage people. Well, they rehashed it and they said, you know what, we're going to create critical race theory. The idea is, you know, now white people, now understand this. What, what does white society represent in America? It's really not about the white, white race. It's what, what dominant influence came over to this country from Europe. You know what came to America from Europe? Christianity. That's really where the attack lies. You know, this is smoke and mirrors. Oh, it's all about white supremacy. I, we were talking about your church. What a wonderful church picture of integration, okay? Uh, no Christian should have prejudice in his heart on racial lines, or economic lines, or anything. God made all men, and he made all men equal. We should understand that. Amen. But 
what society is doing is they want to create this, uh, they use the term systemic racism. Okay, systemic. What's, what's the word systemic mean? System. What system created this so-called racism? It wasn't biblical Christianity. But that's what, what's under attack now. And so Lutzer said what's going to happen is they're going to use this as a means to clamp down on those they call xenophobe, homophobe, whatever, you know, all the slurs that are thrown out all the time. But it's to create this class system so Marxism can come in. And I will warn you, Marxism has never come voluntarily to a people. It only comes as a, an alternative to chaos. Now, why am I talking so much about politics tonight? Again, politics are just symptomatic of worldview. What's happening is there is an assault on the nuclear traditional family. That's the real issue. And what underlies that issue? God's authority. God's authority. It is not white supremacy to think that you should have a family with a mother, a father, and children. That wasn't white people's idea. That was God's idea. I hope it's your idea. See, wisdom starts with God. And when we reject his wisdom, man, we're left in trouble. Okay, so he blessed them, he charged them, then he provided for them. Notice in verses 29 and 30, he says, I've given you every tree of the field bearing fruit. Verse 30, every beast of the earth, every fowl of the air. He says, look, I've made ample provision for you. So God says, you, you have a big family and I'm gonna meet your needs. Okay, some people say, well, if I had a lot of kids, I, I couldn't handle it you know, financially. Well, if God said to do it, and then he says, I'll take care of your needs, somehow it can be done. You can trust him. One of the keys is you got to seek first the kingdom of God, and you need to honor him in giving. I talked about that last night. If you're not honoring God in giving, no wonder you're having trouble with finances. There was a man in my church in Kansas City. He and his wife had both been through failed marriages. Uh, it was a second marriage for each of them. As young people, each of them, independent of the other, had, had felt impressed of God to give their lives to full-time missions, uh, decisions they made caused them not to be able to go as missionaries. Um, they found themselves deep in debt. They, they, would, they would flip houses back before this was a really popular thing, and then they'd buy another house and then flip that house. Well, the economy tanked, and they found themselves deep in debt, quarter million dollars in debt. And uh, God began to work in their heart. You know what? You may not have honored me in the past, but you can honor me from this point, and I will cleanse your conscience. I will, I will forgive the past, but let's move forward. And they said, we have been robbing God. This was their testimony. We have not tithed in years. And they decided they were going to go back, and they were not only going to start tithing, they were going to tithe, they were going to back tithe to God. This was their idea. They normally would get a new car every year. They decided, we're not getting a new car. We're just going to stick with the, they had a Chevy Astro van at the time. And they said, we're going to drive the wheels off this thing, right? They called it the Malachi van. God says, oh, um, you know, you bring all the tithes into the storehouse. I'll pour you out a blessing. There'll not be room enough to receive it. That's Malachi 3, 8 through 10. That van had over 375,000 miles on it. Uh, it had never had any major mechanical problem. They sold it off finally to another guy who had it in construction, and he drove it to over 410,000 miles before it had problems. And they said, you know, it wasn't our Chevy van that was so amazing. It was God who blessed that. In 10 years, they were completely out of debt. And they said, God started blessing our business, and the business he owns now is worth millions. And God blessed him when he began to honor God in his life and his finances. You seek God first. You seek his... I'm not promising you if you do things God's way, you'll be a millionaire. He, he doesn't promise we'll be millionaires. Sometimes people are. But he does promise if you honor me and my principles, then I will rebuke the devourer, and I will, I will meet your needs.
Okay, so he blessed them, he charged them, he provided for them, and also he approved them. So letter E, so he, C was he charged them, D he provided for them, E he approved them. Look at verse 31. God saw everything he made, behold, it was very good. That interesting? God did not look at creation and say, well, that one didn't work out so well. He looked at everything he'd made at that point and said, wow, that's good. Oh, well, what now? What about poison ivy? What about thorns and thistles? That didn't come along till the curse. Apparently, some of those plants changed after the time of the curse. The serpent was not a slithering snake at the time before he fell. Remember, God's curse was put him on his belly. Any of you like snakes? I, if you do, you have my sympathies. I do not like snakes. Well, where did that come from? You know, well, God put that fear, that um, apprehension about snakes going back to the fall. Interesting, God blessed them. We, we have this idea in society that man is an intruder on this population. God never said that. In fact, when he blessed them, he told them back in verse 39, I, I've given you everything here, animals, etc. You're in charge, and he made man superior to all that. Okay, we'll look in greater detail now at chapter 2, because that's number one, the heavenly view of human beings. Number two, I call the give and take of God and man. The give and take of God and man. There are some things God says, I'll do. There are some things he says, man, you, you have to do. Okay, so the give and take. And in chapter 2, he gets into some more details. So pick up in chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Okay, so notice this. Man was formed by God. Man was formed by God. And he was made a living soul. Now, that's important. Hold your place here. I mentioned at one point we get over to John. I want to jump there now. Okay, would you go to John chapter 5 with me? John chapter 5. What's this idea? Man became a living soul. Any given Sunday on your way to church, you, you know what you will not see? You will not see a field of cows bowing in reverence and praying to God. Okay, you will not see sheep gathered in a prayer meeting. You will not see deer, as precious as they are, you will not see deer gathered to sing hymns. Well, what's wrong with them? Well, they don't have an eternal soul, okay? They don't have God consciousness. Man has God consciousness. Why is there such a, a surge today of um, Far Eastern religions, witchcraft, all these kind of things? Because man has a vacancy in his soul that only God can fill. And unless God fills that vacancy, he is desperately trying something in the spiritual realm to satisfy the deadness of his heart. That's why people get on these crusades. You know, it's amazing. I, I was watching the protest in the rotunda of the Capitol today. Supposedly a group of Jews who are um, protesting what's going on in Israel, and their website states they want the eradication of the state of Israel. Jews saying they want Israel to be eradicated. Are you kidding me? Okay, now... Why is there such vitriol for the state of Israel? It's the devil. It's Satan, the opponent of God. I mean, he knows that all of the fulfillments of prophetic scripture are tied up with Israel. And so he has been on the warpath from the beginning to destroy Israel. From the beginning. Okay, well, now God made man, but man's not just, you know, an animal. Look at John 5, verse 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life. Shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. So notice the term everlasting life. Drop down to verse 28 for sake of time. Marvel not at this, the hour is coming in which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. Wait a minute. All that are, how can people in the grave hear his voice? 
You understand when you die, it's not over. Your body's in the grave, but your spirit and soul live on. All in the grave shall hear his voice. Notice 29. They shall come forth, they that have done good to the resurrection of life. They that have done evil to the resurrection of damnation. Okay, notice two resurrections. Resurrection of life and the resurrection of damnation. What's damnation referred to? The second death. Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15 says... um, Death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Listen, nobody likes to talk about that. But the truth of the matter is there is a place called the second death, called hell, ultimately called the lake of fire. Interesting, where is hell today? Most likely hell is in the center of the earth. Uh, We the Bible talks about going down into hell. But one day, this earth is going to be destroyed and made into a whole new heaven and new earth. And that's probably the prophecy where hell hath enlarged herself. And then there's a relocation project goes on. And what is currently in the core of the earth will most likely be transferred to what's called the lake of fire. It is the place of eternal suffering. And, and believe me, when I preach about that, that is not just some, you know, that's not just some church doctrine. That was the destination of the man standing in front of you until Jesus Christ saved me. If I had not been saved, that's where I'd be going when I die. I know that's what I deserve. Whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point is guilty of all. And I'm going to tell you, as somebody who was rescued from hell by the Lord, if you don't know him, he doesn't want to to have you stand before him as judge. He wants to be your father. But how does he become your father? As many as received him, speaking of Christ, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. That's John 1, 12. You must be born again. How do you get born again? Christ died for your sins. He was buried. He rose again. That was the transaction necessary to be saved. Repent and believe the gospel. Repent. What's that mean? Change your mind. You're not good. You're guilty. You're separated from God by your sin. So, Recognizing your sin doesn't make you justified, but it puts you in a position where now you rely on Jesus Christ. That's what saves you. When you put your dependence upon him alone, you are saved. And if you've never done that, I I plead with you. The Bible says, now's the accepted time. Now's the day of salvation. Because if you die without God's forgiveness, you will then face God's punishment. And he never intended it for you. Why would a loving God make a hell? Why is Israel about to unleash fury on Hamas? Well, I will tell you what, if there is not some retribution meted out for what's gone on, it will just continue. And we're seeing this, you're you're seeing it in California, this idea of defund the police and the idea of uh, no-fault bail and everybody gets out, you get a slap on the wrist. How's that working out in this state? Yeah, terrible. And by the way, it's not working in anybody's state. No, God is perfectly just, and a just God must must punish sin. But I thought God loves people. He does. He loves them so much. He became one of us that he might die for us. He's not willing that any should perish. He doesn't want Hamas to die in their sin. He does not want Israel to die in their sin. He does not want you to die in your sin. He doesn't want the homeless person to die in their sin. He doesn't want your governor to die in his sin. He doesn't want your wife or your children to die in their sin. God wants all men to be saved. You and I got to come to him that we might be saved. Notice there is a resurrection of life or the resurrection of damnation. And interestingly enough, that's it. Some people say, well, what about the alternative place? You don't find the alternative place in the Bible. 
Some people say, well, I grew up in a church tradition that taught, you know, purgatory or um, limbo. You know, I know why churches came up with that idea. They're thinking, well, I'm, I'm, I know I'm not good enough for heaven, perhaps, but I'm surely not bad enough for hell. There must be an in-between place. Folks, there's no in-between place. Well, how can you say that? The Bible is the Word of God. And I will tell you, I have, I've read it. I'm not embellishing this. I have read it every single day of my life since I was 15. I promised God I would never shut the light off at the end of the night if I hadn't read something from the Bible every day. Literally, read it every day of my life. I will, I've read it through more times than I can tell you. I'm not saying that to brag. I'm telling you, I know what the Bible says. There's heaven and there's hell, and that's it. And if you die without the Lord, you're not going to go to heaven. But he doesn't want that for you. He doesn't want that for anybody. That's why he paid your sin debt for you, so you can be saved. So the heavenly view of human beings, and now the give and take of God and man. Okay, man was formed by God. Then man was given a job by God. Go back to Genesis with me. Notice in verse 8, Genesis 2, verse 8, the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden. There he put the man whom he'd formed. Jump down to verse 15, if you will. 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. This is interesting. God gave man work before the curse. Some people say, oh, I'll tell you what, I hate my job. Work is a curse. No, work is not a curse. The curse doesn't come along to the next chapter. In fact, uh, be good in our society if we remember things like this. 2 Thessalonians 3.10, if any man will not work, neither should he what? Eat. That's a good one, 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Proverbs 20, verse 4 says, the sluggard will not plow, by reason of the cold, therefore shall he beg and harvest and have nothing. So if you don't work, you can't expect to reap. Okay, that wasn't man's idea. That was God's idea. Work was a blessing from God. But what happened with the curse was work became a burden. Hey, interesting, something else that was not a part of the curse was the bearing of children. We have a society that acts like pregnancy is a curse. Oh no, I'm pregnant. Well, first of all, pregnancy out of wedlock, that creates complications. But you know, children are a blessing from the Lord. Children are a heritage of the Lord. It wasn't pregnancy. It wasn't childbearing that was a curse. But God told Eve after she sinned, I'm going to multiply your sorrow and your, your pain in childbearing. One other thing she said to, um, he said, uh, God said to Eve at that point, your desire will be to your husband. How's that a curse? It was like, I can't wait to get my hands on him. Uh, no, he wasn't talking about that kind of desire. What's he talking about? You're going to want to be in charge. Listen, as our society gets farther and farther from God, one of the, um, one of the consequences you see of that is um, matriarchal society. Women in charge. Now, ladies, this is not to be disparaging. This is one of the reasons that we got big problems in our study. This is not misogyny, okay, for me to tell you this. this let's go back to God. This all goes back to his authority. God set up that men are to be the leaders in their home and in their country. Why? Well, I want to take you to 1 Corinthians for a minute on that because this is an area where, man, society just rails. Well, see old-fashioned Christianity. You know, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he was a misogynist. And well, wait a minute. God created this whole concept. But I want to tell you something. Satan has found grounds to attack this idea because... It is easy to find abusive relationships. Are there abusive husbands? <laughs> yes, there are. There are way too many. By the way, are there ever abusive wives? I know a fellow who ended up getting out of the ministry. He was a missionary because his wife beat him. 
Yeah, they end up, the marriage ended up falling apart. She was beating him. Okay, now that's, I will grant you, that's the exception. That's not the norm. It's usually the husband doing it, right? Look at this whole concept. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3. I would have you know the head of every man is Christ. The head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. Okay, so we often hear, you know, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Right before that in Ephesians, we're told that part of being filled with the Spirit is submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of the Lord. I've been married 30 years. And I will tell you this. I once heard a man at a marriage conference. He said, my wife and I have never had a crossword in our lives. And I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Um, and I knew the man. I don't think he was embellishing it, but my wife and I are both firstborns. I would be lying if I told you we've never had a crossword in a month, okay? So the truth of the matter is there are many times we have locked horns. Okay, you know what we do when we do that? We talk about it. And there are times when I've said, you know what? You're right, Angela. I'm sorry. I wasn't, I wasn't considering that. There are times when I've had to say, yeah, you're right. There are other times when I've had to say to her, hon, listen, I know you may not understand this right now. But you got to remember this. Someday when we stand before God, you and I will each give account to God for our own lives, but you got to remember, i got to give account to God for the whole family too. Now, God says when it comes to the man, the head of the man is who? Christ. Here's an interesting concept. And the head of Christ is who? God, what? How does Jesus, I thought he's king of kings and lord of lords. Who could be above Jesus? The head of Christ is God. What does that mean? I like what uh, Pastor Johnny Pope out of Texas said. You know, I marvel at the modesty in the Trinity. The Holy Spirit always promotes Jesus Christ. If you find a ministry where the Holy Spirit is central focus, it's imbalanced. The Spirit of God does not promote himself. He promotes Christ. And Jesus said, I do always those things that please him. He's always looking out for the Father's interest. Interesting. Was Jesus Christ in any way inferior to God the Father? No. And yet he submitted to God. Listen, in a good marriage, a husband is to love his wife like Christ loved the church, and the wife is to reverence her husband. And it's not one trying to vie for power over the other. It's a partnership. Just like Jesus said of the Father, I do always those things that please him. That's the way God intended headship to work. But our society has no concept of that. Go back to Genesis now. So man was created by God. He was given a job by God. He was restricted by God. Look at Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. Verses 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it. From the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. Notice he said there, and I don't know if there were dozens or hundreds. I would imagine there were hundreds of trees in the Garden of Eden. Uh, you know, I, I doubt it was just some little garden plot like we think of. This, this is paradise. He said, all these trees here, all that fruit, free access. You guys, whatever you want. But Adam and Eve, there's one tree. I don't want you to eat of it. And why did God tell him that? It was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, does God want people to be ignorant? Tree of the knowledge of what? It wasn't the tree of knowledge, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was no evil in their world. They didn't need to know about evil. This is why it is a sick concept to have drag queen story hour for children. Well, what do children understand about sexuality? That, that's a reprehensible. Years ago, people who did that kind of thing would have been arrested as child predators. When did that become moral? It's not moral. It is not moral. That is, that is evil. 
And Jesus warned about those who do harm to children. He said, it better for them that a millstone were hanged about their neck and they were cast into the depths of the sea. That's not my opinion. That's what the Lord said. Children do not need to know about those kind of things. And when it's time to learn, they should learn it from home, not from their public school. Amen. Now, I'm going to tell you something. God told Adam and Eve, you don't need to know about evil. There's no evil in your world. Okay, I do, I do not need to study all of the gross details of sodomy to preach about sodomy. Okay, I, I do not need to know all of the grotesque goings on in the, uh, the realm of prostitution to talk about, hey, that, we shouldn't be involved in that. I don't, I don't need to delve into the depraved depths of pornography to warn men against pornography. Don't need to know about that. God says, I'd have you wise into that which is good, but simple concerning evil. That's Romans 16, 19. Why did he tell him, I'm going to restrict this? Remember, here's a great verse, Psalm 84, 11, No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Whenever God says no, it's always for your good and for his glory. But Satan said, well, yea, half God said. Notice the first things recorded out of Satan's mouth when it came to interaction with humans was questioning God. Half God said, ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden. No, he didn't say that. He said directly opposite. You can eat of all the trees except one. Oh, you'll not surely die. Now he contradicts God. God said, you will surely die. Okay, so God restricted man. But then I want you to notice man was evaluated by God. Look at verse 18. The Lord God, the Lord God said, it's not good that the man should be alone. This is the first time we see not good. And what was not good? Singleness. Bachelorhood. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 7 says, every man hath his proper gift of God. There are people who are bachelors. There are people, the Bible says, some are eunuchs, some are, have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of God. That does not mean some people are homosexual. That means some people are not attracted to the opposite sex. That's a gift from God. The norm is marriage. The Lord said it's not good that a man should be alone. Today, it's like we got to talk our young people into thinking that marriage would be a good idea. Let me tell you, it is a great idea. It's God's idea. And we are seeing society pay for it now. Do you know there are industrialized countries that don't even have enough children to replace themselves? It is now South Korea that's leading the world in the problem of depopulation. The, uh, the reproduction rate in South Korea among women of childbearing age, that's between 16 and uh, 44 years old, is 1.34, I think I read. 1.34. You know what you have to have to just replace yourself in society? You've got to have 2.1 children per uh, woman of uh, childbearing age, 2.1. South Korea, it's 1.34, I think. Check me on that, 1.38, something under 1.4. China's the next. They had their one-child policy for years. Now they're trying to talk people into having children. Okay, listen, somebody said, you ever uh, gave the whole world population a foot and a half to stand in, gather the whole world in one place, you could fit the entire world's population in the city limits of Jacksonville, Florida. I had a mathematician check me on that. I'd heard that stat. He did the math. He said, absolutely right. Jacksonville has some of the largest land area of a city in the country. But even then, the entire world's population of 8 billion can fit in the city limits of Jacksonville, Florida. Now, I know we couldn't all survive in one city. That's true. But you hear people say, oh, the world's overpopulated. Have you driven across this country? See, people who think this world is overpopulated only fly from one metropolitan area to another. Take it from a guy who has driven, I think, I think I've driven just about every interstate in America, and I can tell you this, the world is not overpopulated. You say, yeah, but you can't, some people couldn't exist. Some places are desert. 
Have you heard of Las Vegas? It's amazing what they did. Now, I'm not interested in going there, but you can't tell me that you can't turn desert into profitable society. No, the world's not overpopulated. We're being told lies. God blessed them. He restricted them. And then uh, man was evaluated by God. And he said, you know what? Loneliness is not good. And, And then finally, I want you to see this last thing. Oh, actually, two more things. Man was tasked with naming the creatures, verse 19, so whatever Adam called them, that's what they were named. Some have this idea that Adam was some kind of caveman like, oh, oh. Adam was no caveman. In fact, he was probably the most intelligent being who ever lived. He saw Solomon, wisest man. Well, wisdom and intelligence aren't always the same, but think about this. Where did Adam learn everything? From God. He was the first homeschooler and God was his father and he taught him everything. <laughs> and then notice finally, he not only was tasked with naming the animals, he was given a wife by God given a wife by God. Notice uh, verse 20. God, Adam gave names to all the cattle, the fowl, the air, to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a help meet for him. Now, we sometimes merge the word help meet to one. It's actually two separate words. Help is the noun. Meet is the adjective. Okay, help, like a helper. That's the noun. Meet means suitable for, appropriate to, adequate for. Okay, she was a help who was perfectly suited for him. Verse 21, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. He slept. He took one of his ribs. I love what somebody said. You know, she wasn't taken out of his feet where he would walk on her. Wasn't taken out of his head where she would rule over her. She was taken out of his rib where she'd be right beside him. Uh, Taken out of the rib and he made a woman. He brought her to the man. Verse 23, Adam said, "This, this is now bone of my bones. Flesh of my flesh. Meaning what? She wasn't like the reptiles. She wasn't like mammals. No, she's flesh like me. This is... She's unique. She'll be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife. They shall be one flesh. They were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. Where did marriage come from? Marriage was not a white person's institution. Marriage was ordained by God in the garden. God ordained marriage. And interestingly, notice he, he, he said in uh, Proverbs 18, 22, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth the favor of the Lord. Proverbs 19, 14 said, A prudent wife is from the Lord. Some people say, well, you know, Paul said it's good for a man to, you know, be like me. And they say, well, Paul was single. Yeah, at that point he was. Evidently, he wasn't always single. Why do you say that? He was a Pharisee prior to being saved. And to be a Pharisee, he had to be married. So evidently, Paul was at one time married. He must have been a widower. But then he said, yeah, it's because of the present distress, because of persecution going on. He said, it'd be better for you to remain single, but, you know, better to marry than to burn. He says, every man has a proper gift to God. God said the norm was for people to get married. We need to get back to the old-fashioned principle that the nuclear family, the traditional family, was ordained by God and blessed by God. I close with this, and I'm sorry, I've gone longer tonight, so I'm going to wrap it up with a final quote. But this is out of that book I told you about, um, We Will Not Be Silenced. This is a quote from a famous personality, I will tell you who, um, given in a Chicago church one Father's Day back in the early part of the, uh, or the middle part of the previous decade. Listen to this. Uh, he's a, he's a, a black man speaking at an African-American church. He said, if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that what too many fathers are is missing. Missing from too many lives and too many homes. They've abandoned their responsibilities, acting like boys instead of men. And the foundations of our family are weaker because of it. You and I have known how true this is in the African-American community. Again, black man speaking to black congregation. 
We know that more than half of all African-American children live in single-parent households, a number that has doubled, doubled since we were children. We know the statistics. The children who grow up without a father, and listen, this is not just African-American kids, okay, not just black families. Children who grow up without a father, this is true in any race. Children who grow up without a father are five times more likely to live in poverty and commit crimes, five times, nine times more likely to drop out of school, 20 times more likely to end up in prison. They are more likely to have behavioral problems, run away from home, or become teenage parents themselves. And the foundations of our community are weaker because of it. We also need families to raise our children. We need fathers to realize the responsibility, I'm sorry, that responsibility does not end at conception. We need them to realize that what makes a man a man is not the ability to have a child, it's the courage to raise one. Barack Obama, 2008. Now let me tell you, there was very little I personally agreed with President Obama on politically. The race is no problem. That shouldn't be a problem to anybody. There was very little I agreed with him on politically, but I will tell you this. What he said there, I fully agree with. Sad thing is, he'd be canceled for saying that today, too. He'd be pressured not to say that today. But he knew it was true. And I will tell you, we're the worst off in society because we've abandoned the foundation of life. And my dad wasn't kidding when he said it. If you're going to understand life, you've got to go back to the first 11 chapters of Genesis. May God give us the courage to realize that God's idea for family was one man, one woman, for life, with children that God blesses them with. Now, I am not naive. I know some of you say, listen, listen Rich, I'm on a second marriage, third marriage. You know, I've been through it or I... I've had relationships. I thought I might get married. I didn't go through it. I understand. Look, we don't build principles off exceptions. But I will tell you, wherever you are in this whole process now, be like my friend Tony I told you about, who they had gotten deep in debt, and they had been through a couple of, uh, they had been through a failed marriage, and now they thought, what are we going to do for God? They said, we start where we are, and we are going to embrace God's word and his authority, and thank God his blood cleanses the conscience, and we move forward with God. Thank God for hope.